0: Good afternoon, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you're here today, whether you're a regular attender or a visitor, and you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, you're not a disciple, you would say today, hey, I really don't care about Jesus. He's not my treasure. He's not my joy. Well, I just want you to know that I'm glad you're here, but I'm not sure why you're here. Because we believe some crazy things here at Grace. We believe that Jesus came back from the dead. We believe that God forgives us of all of our sins. We believe that God loves us with an unconditional love, no strings attached kind of love. We believe in grace here. So I'm sure that sounds strange to you if you're an unbeliever. But we're glad you're here. I'm tempted to tell you as I heard Steve Brown say once, run and get out before you get hurt because the truth of the matter is that we are sinners and if you hang out with us long enough we're going to hurt your feelings we're going to hurt you we're going to offend you we're going to let you down but we want you to belong to our family here we want to love on you and serve you but you have to know that we're sinners there's no perfect person here at grace only Jesus Christ is the only perfect one here. But if you're an unbeliever today, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a disciple, I want you to eavesdrop on this sermon today because I'm primarily going to be speaking to Christians, to disciples, to those who value Jesus more than anything. But if you're an unbeliever, I want your ears to perk up. I hope you're awake, and I hope you eavesdrop, because what I'm going to say mostly today is to Christians. I want you to eavesdrop so that by the end of the sermon, you may say, hey, I want in on that too. How do I get some of that? But this is what I'm going to say to the Christians here today, and it's this. God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you, Christian. Now, I'm not sure I've ever been more excited to preach a sermon than I am right now. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've read a passage in the Bible a million times and then one day, bam, the lights go on and you see something that you've never seen before and it's like, wow, I've read this a million times, how did I never see that? That happened to me in this chapter several, several years ago, specifically in verse 10. I saw something in the Hebrew, the Hebrew language that blew my mind. It has something to do with our sermon title today. We'll talk more about it in a moment. But we're probably all familiar with the phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? If you're a Christian, you know that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm going to propose another way of approaching that verse today. And I hope the lights go on for you too. Our big idea today is this, when the word of God is clear, God's people cheer. That's what we'll see in this chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 8. When God's people begin to understand his word, when it becomes true for them, when they delight in the truths of scripture, when they start really believing the promises of God, when believers really get the gospel, then they will be full of cheer when God's people begin to understand and believe all that Jesus Christ is for us in the gospel, then the result will be nothing short of a life characterized by joy and gladness. When God's people actually start to believe the title to this sermon, then they might actually go buy some steaks and buy some wine and throw a party More on that in a moment. But first, let me show you where I'm getting the big idea out of chapter 8. Nine times in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, the Hebrew word Torah is used. This is translated as law or teaching. So there's this emphasis on the word of God in Nehemiah chapter 8. Secondly, three times the word joy or rejoicing is used. So there's this connection between God's word and the joy that it produces in us. And those two ideas come together for our big idea, which is this. Again, when God's word is clear, God's people cheer. Look at verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadnah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Well, we saw that the city walls surrounding Jerusalem were completed in Nehemiah chapter 6. And last week we saw that Nehemiah put together the church directory, if you will, in Nehemiah chapter 7. But now it's time for Israel to party in chapter 8. So the people gather at the water gate, which was the proverbial water cooler. And they asked Ezra to go get the law of Moses and to read it to them. They did not have personal copies of God's word. They did not each have their own Bible like we do. So they were dependent on God's word being read publicly in a public worship service. That's how they heard the word of God. Now notice that verse 1 says, The book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. God's word comes as a commandment, not a mere suggestion for the people of God. His word is not optional for us. Obedience to his word, reading his word, memorizing his word, meditating on his word, sitting under the preaching of his word, these are not options for disciples. The law, it says, was commanded To God's people. And the law must do its work. The law must do its work of condemning us and exposing our sin. The law, when we hear it, must do its work of condemning us before the gospel can do its work of reassuring us. And that's the first function of the law that the reformers talked about, is that the law shows us our sinfulness. So Ezra takes the scroll and he rolls it out. Probably it was the book of Deuteronomy. It was the first day of the seventh month and they were about to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. More on this in a moment. But in God's law, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verses 9 through 13, gives the instructions for what Israel was about to do in preparation for celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 31, verse 9 says, And then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, At the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So Ezra opens up the scroll of Deuteronomy, and he reads it to all who can understand. And then Ezra goes and does something that is so countercultural to us. He reads the law, the book of Deuteronomy, for about four to five hours From morning until noon, he reads the Old Testament and they sit and they listen. Now by yourself, it'll take you about two and a half to three hours to read the book of Deuteronomy. So maybe with a few interruptions since kids were present, Ezra reads the book of Deuteronomy for about four to five hours. And then verse four says that Ezra stood on a platform that they had made for him. The platform served, served uh, two purposes. One, it enabled the people to see Ezra. They didn't have the, you know, mini screens like, like we do in churches now where you can see the preacher. But secondly, and most importantly, it served as a reminder that God's word is above us. That it is sovereign and has authority over all people. Every human being, Christian or non-Christian. Now look at verses 5 through 8. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed Yahweh the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So Ezra opened and unrolled this long scroll and all the people stood up. It was a sign of reverence for the word of God. And then verse 6 says, After Ezra read from the book of the law, he blessed the Lord. He, he likely exalted Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and, and spoke of his attributes, how he was the great and awesome and merciful God. And then the people of God responded, amen. Amen. Now this is a preacher's dream verse because you don't have the obligatory can I get a witness or can I get an amen? These people are so struck with God and his character and his word that they respond with not just one amen but with two amens. And then they lifted up their hands. This was not passive worship. They're engaged. They're listening to and responding To the word of God. This is none other than proof that when God's word is clear, God's people cheer. They hear God's word explain and they respond with two amens and they lift their hands in worship. Shouldn't this be the way that we respond to God's word? Shouldn't we respond to God's word with joy and cheerfulness? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul does. You just read his letters. He starts expounding on some deep theological truth and he'll stop in the middle of what he's saying and just exert praise to God. Right in the middle of his letters. He'll be so overwhelmed with the truth of what he's saying that he'll stop and say, blessed be the Lord. Have you ever read a passage and the truth just struck you and you couldn't help but praise God? Like the lights go on and you just stop what you're doing and you're so overwhelmed with the truth of God's word. That's what Paul does in his letters. It's what these Israelites did and it's what we should do too. You see, when God's word is clear, God's people cheer. Well, after their joy over God's word, the Israelites continue in worship. And verse six says that they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground they put their noses down into the carpet they put their faces down into the dirt which was a sign of their submission to the authoritative word of god In fact, the Hebrew word here for worship means to cause oneself to bow down. That's what this Hebrew word here means, worship. It means you cause yourself to bow down. It's used over 170 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it occurs exclusively in the hishtafel stem, which is the causative stem in the Hebrew language. Now... I know that doesn't give you goosebumps, but let me explain that to you. The idea behind this verb form is that in worship, it is you causing yourself to bow down. That's what it means to worship. It's you recognizing God's sovereignty and you respond by falling on your face. That's worship. You make yourself bow down. You cause yourself to bow down. And worship. So the Israelites have responded to God's word by attentive listening four or five hours, by standing, by raising their hands, by saying amen, and now by kneeling and bowing down and making themselves get down on their hands and knees. I think you could sum all of this up this way Worship is joyful trembling. That's how I describe worship. There is a trembling at the holiness and sovereignty of God. And then there's a joy that he has saved sinners like us. Joyful trembling. That's how you define worship according to the Bible. Joyful trembling. Now, I know it seems like those two words don't go together, but they do. It's what you see all over the Bible when people encounter God in the scriptures. In fact, it's what's happening around God's throne right now. Worship is joyful trembling. Well, after this public reading of scripture, then personal discipleship took place. The Israelites actually start making disciple-making disciples. Look at verse 7. And the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the Levites took copies of the book of Deuteronomy and possibly copies of Exodus and Leviticus, and they explained God's word to the people. They broke it down. They made it clear. They explained it so that the people understood it. And why did they go explain God's word to God's people? Because when God's word is clear, God's people cheer. And that has been my goal since I came here as pastor. To make the scriptures easy to understand, hard to forget, and impossible to ignore. And that should be the goal of every pastor or teacher of the Bible. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, to make the scriptures easy to understand, hard to forget, And impossible to ignore. But notice how these people respond to God's word in verses 9 through 12. It's different. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Well, the people didn't cheer at first as God's word was explained to them. When the Levites went out into the crowds and began personally discipling these people and explaining God's word to them, they didn't cheer. They actually became overwhelmed with sorrow. Now, why? Why did the people weep when they heard God's word Explain. They wept because of their history of covenant disobedience as a nation. They heard God's word. They heard his commandments. They heard the law. They heard what the Lord expected of his people. And they knew that they fell short. So they wept. The law of God did its work of sweeping the legs out from any Israelite who thought they were righteous. The law did its work of exposing their sin. But then Ezra comes along and he tells them, this day is is holy. This day is set apart. Don't weep. It's not appropriate. Instead, go and celebrate. Eat good food. Drink good wine. Send food and drink to the poor around you. It's time to celebrate. It's time to party. Now, let me say something here about Ezra telling them to go away and drink wine. It was real wine, Ezra is not condoning getting drunk here, okay? Some of you in your conscience, you can say, I can drink alcohol. I'm free in the Lord. I have the liberty. And some of you say, I'm not free to do that, okay? Wherever you are on that issue, do you drink wine? Do you not drink wine? Understand this. Ezra is not condoning getting drunk here. When Ezra tells Israel to go grab a bottle of wine, he is not telling them to go get drunk, to go get intoxicated, to go get hammered, to go get wasted, to go get plastered, to go get sloshed or to become three sheets to the wind. No, drunkenness is wrong. It is a sin. Ephesians 5:18. What Ezra is saying is that they should go and drink wine and eat good food and celebrate God's grace. And as and they should celebrate God's grace to them by going out to eat a good meal at steak and ale that restaurant is closed I think it declared bankruptcy but Ezra is saying go eat a steak and drink a good ale now why would Ezra and Nehemiah and the other leaders say this why are they to celebrate on this day why is this a time of rejoicing why are they to go and grill steaks and drink wine and throw a party Let me answer those questions by saying that this is the part of the sermon that I couldn't wait to get to. Ezra gives the reason why they should be celebrating with joy in verse 10. Ezra tells the nation of Israel why they should all run to Party City and buy some balloons and kazoos and party hats. Ezra tells them in verse 10, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The reason why Israel should be throwing a party is because the joy of the Lord, the joy of Yahweh, is their strength. So what is the connection between having joy and not grieving and the joy of the Lord being our strength? What is the connection between do not mourn, do not weep, and the joy of the Lord? What is the connection between do not mourn, but go celebrate and have a party? The answer lies in how we interpret the phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I hope to explain it to you like the Levites explained God's word to the Israelites that day. Because I want you to be flabbergasted today at what this verse means. I want to explain the meaning of this verse to you so that you leave here today and you go buy some steak and you go buy some wine and you go throw a party. I want to explain this verse to you today so that maybe some of you would invite somebody else out to eat lunch at a restaurant And the reason you should go do that and celebrate today is because God's not mad at you, Christian. So find somebody here in the church and maybe offer to pay for their lunch or just say, Do you want to go to lunch with us? And sit down in the restaurant and have a face that's beaming and then let the waitress come up and say, What are you celebrating today? And you say, We're celebrating the fact that God's not mad at us anymore. Evangelism is easy when you rehearse the gospel. That's easy. All you got to do is go sit down at a table and everybody grin. I guarantee you, your waitress will say, What's going on here? And that's when you say, God's not mad at us anymore, so we're celebrating. We're partying today. So, what does the phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, mean? I think there are two options. Option number one is the way I used to believe what it meant the joy of the Lord is your strength. It means that you will have strength when you find your joy in God. It means that you will have strength for the Christian walk when Jesus is your treasure and you find your joy in him. And if you are familiar with my preaching and teaching, this is vintage Benji Magnus right here. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree that we must find our joy in Christ alone and that when we do, we will be strengthened to live for him. I wholeheartedly agree with David when he says in Psalm 47, "You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound." Yes, I believe that when Jesus satisfies us more than anything in this life, then we will be empowered to live for his glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think before we get to that option, that understanding of this verse, we must embrace the other optional meaning of this verse. So option number two, which is what I think the verse is saying is this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It means that the Lord's joy over his people is their protection. It means that because the Lord rejoices over his people, he does not pour his wrath out on them. His joy Over us, protects us from his holy, righteous anger. The Hebrew here is a subjective genitive. What that means is that it is the Lord's joy. This verse is talking about the Lord's joy, not our joy. It is the Lord who is full of joy. It is the Lord who is overflowing with joy. Joy belongs to the Lord. The joy being described is the joy that belongs to Jesus, the joy that Jesus possesses. It's Jesus' joy that is stressed here, not our joy. It's subjective, a subjective genitive in the Hebrew language, not objective, the joy of Yahweh, the joy that Yahweh has over his people. Yahweh's joy is our strength. And the word strength in Hebrew means stronghold or fortress. It's used this way in various verses in the Bible. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 37, 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. Jeremiah 16, 19, oh Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. I believe that Ezra is saying this to Israel, don't grieve people, be joyful. Put those Kleenex boxes away, don't weep, don't have the ugly cry face. Don't let your mascara run down your cheeks. Why? Why, you ask, why, Israel? Because the Lord's joy is your stronghold. The Lord's joy is your protection. The Lord's joy is your fortress, your refuge. It is Yahweh's joy over his people that protects us from his wrath against our sins. We should not be grieving because God's not mad at us. He actually rejoices over us. That's awesome grace. As the old TV shows used to say, that's incredible. That's the gospel. God's not mad at you. If you are God's child and have been adopted into his family by faith in Christ, then he's not mad at you anymore. But what were the people struggling with in Nehemiah 8? And why were they grieving? They were weeping because they heard God's righteous requirements in the law. And they knew their history of rebellion. So they started to grieve. The word, was, the word of God was unclear in that they only heard the law, in that they only heard the condemnation of the law, so they couldn't cheer because they hadn't heard any gospel yet. They were leveled by the law, so they were grieved. All they heard was the law, the condemnation of the law, of how they have done wrong, how they haven't lived up to God's requirements until Ezra brought the gospel. So Ezra comes along and gives them the gospel, And he says, stop grieving. Put your Kleenex away and grab a bottle of Chianti. Grab a bottle of wine. Put away your sackcloth and ashes and go grab some Samuel Adams. Have joy. Be overwhelmed with God's grace. Why? Because the Lord has joy over you, his people. And his joy over you as his covenant people is exactly what is keeping him from destroying you and pouring his anger out on you because of your sin. His joy over you is your protection, your fortress, your stronghold. Yes, you should be wiped out, Israel, because of your sin. Yes, the law has condemned you, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, you should be the recipients of God's wrath, but because of sacrificial atonement, because of all the animals that die in our place for our sins, all the animals that are pointing to the Redeemer to come, because of that, Yahweh rejoices over you, and therefore, his joy over you is your protection, your fortress, your stronghold. So fire up the grill, Put some steaks on the grill and grab a nice bottle of wine. It's time to party. It's time to celebrate. Grace, this is the gospel. That because of our Redeemer, because of Jesus Christ's life and death, God does not see us as filthy, rebellious people. He actually rejoices over us. Think about your last week and what you thought, said, did, and all the motors that were driving everything that you thought, said, and did. And God looks at you right now, and he rejoices over you. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's because the word gospel means good news. Tell me that's not good news. Tell me that's not good news, that God looks at you right now and he rejoices with loud singing in spite of all that you did last week, in spite of what you said to your spouse this morning as you got ready for church. I lost my place in my notes. (laughs) Ezra and company We're looking forward to Jesus, the Redeemer. They were looking forward to him. We look back to his life and death and resurrection. And because of Jesus, because we are in union with him, God does not see us as filthy, rebellious people. He actually rejoices over us because when he sees us, he sees Jesus. When he sees you, he does not see your sin. He sees his son, And tell me, when God looks at his son, what does he do? His heart heart overflows with joy and praise because he loves his son. And that's what he does when he looks at you. As Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So option number one, you will have strength for the Christian journey when you find your joy in God. That actually flows out of option number two, the Lord's joy over his people is their protection. It is precisely because Jesus has joy over his people that his people have joy over Jesus and all that he has done for them. The Lord's joy over his people gives his people joy over their sorrows, joy over their sin, joy over their circumstances. Because we know that the Lord has joy over us, his people, we can then have joy in the Lord. And that's what happened in verse 12. The people understood the gospel, understood the word of God, and they went away, as verse 12 says, to make great rejoicing. They listened to Ezra and they went to Costco and they bought a bunch of steaks and a lot of wine and they had a party. They were struck down by the law in Deuteronomy that Ezra had read earlier that morning, but then Ezra pointed them to the gospel so they went away to make great rejoicing. They went away to party. And people think serving Jesus is a bore. Hogwash. He says, go eat steak and drink wine and give to the poor. Serving Jesus is the best thing in the world. Why? Because Jesus throws the best parties. And now a question. Does this mean that there are not times for sorrow over our sin? Does this mean that there should not be times of repentance? No. We saw the nation of Israel repent in Ezra chapter nine and Ezra chapter 10 and we'll see them repent next week in Nehemiah chapter nine. There are times when we are to grieve over our sins. There are times when we are called to do what Puritan John Owen said. Bring the holy law of God into your conscience. Lay your corruption to it. Pray that you may be affected with it. Consider the holiness, spirituality, fiery severity, inwardness, absoluteness of the law and see how you can stand before it. Be much, I say, in affecting your conscience with the terror of the Lord and the law and how righteous it is that every one of your transgressions should receive a recompense of reward. We must come to grips with our sin. We must let the law do its work. But ongoing sorrow and grief, while proper at times, can leave the people of God unprotected morbid introspection will turn your eyes from Jesus onto you and that never ends well. Listen, anytime you take your eyes off of Jesus onto you, it never ends well. One of two things will always happen. When you turn your eyes off of Jesus and you look at you oh look at me, I've been, been reading my Bible since January 1st. I haven't missed a quiet time in 10 years. When you turn your eyes off of Jesus, it goes onto you and how good you are. Guess what? Pride comes in. Who gets the glory then? never ends well when you take your eyes off of Jesus because you'll be full of pride. Look at me. Nobody loves Jesus like me. Nobody cares about missions but me. Nobody cares about the poor but me. I do. Where are your eyes? Pride comes when you get your eyes off of Jesus or the other thing that happens is you look at your life and you say, gosh, I haven't done it. I haven't read the Bible in four days. Before that, I went a month. Do I even love Jesus? Am I a Christian? Morbidly introspective and then what happens? Despair comes and you become paralyzed. Paralyzed. One of two things always happens when you take your eyes off of Jesus. You become prideful or you become paralyzed. Never ends well when you take your eyes off of Jesus. So option two, the joy being described that it belongs to Jesus that leads us to the truth that joy and delight and cheerfulness in Yahweh fulfill a protective function in our lives joy in the lord keeps us from drowning in our despair and this is why i preach so much on joy and this is why part of our mission statement is that we exist to enjoy god so how do you keep your joy and not lose it you remember the gospel you rehearse the gospel the lord's joy over you because of jesus and what jesus has done that protects you from despair His joy over you is your refuge, your stronghold. His joy over you is the fortress that you run into when the storm of the law comes and condemns you. When the law says, do this, and you say, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. His joy over you is the shelter that you run into. And when the storm of your sin rages around you and the devil says, I can't believe you did that. You call yourself a Christian The joy of Jesus is your shelter and you run to him and you tell the devil, yes, I'm a sinner, but he rejoices over me. What are you going to do with that? How amazing. God has joy over me because of Jesus. It's true when God's word is clear, when the law is preached, followed by the gospel, Then God's people cheer. Well, joy was also appropriate for the Israelites because they were about to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Look at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So what was the Feast of Booth or the Feast of Tabernacles? We saw the nation celebrate this in Ezra chapter 3. The Feast of Tabernacles was a festival designed to remind Israel of the wilderness journeys when they came out of slavery in Egypt. So during an entire week, the Israelites were supposed to live in these makeshift huts or booths that were weak and fragile and barely held together. This was camping out to them. It was to remind them for one week a year that they used to live in the wilderness and they had no home, and it was to remind them how fragile their lives were. But understand this, Grace. Grace. God's people aren't just weak one week of the year. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to scream into the Israelites' ears that God's people are always weak and that we are always fragile. They weren't just weak and fragile because they had left Babylon and were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They weren't weak and fragile because most of them were living in tents at this point. They are weak and fragile because that's how God's people are at all times and in every generation. But notice in verse 17 how joy was still a theme in the midst of their weakness. And there was very great rejoicing. What prompted this joy? It's the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 16 verses 13 through 15 highlights this. They heard God's word, they understood it, and it produced joy. Remember, when God's word is clear, God's people cheer. They understood that God had done all of these things for them. Provided redemption from slavery to Egypt and slavery to Babylon. He provided forgiveness of their sins through sacrificial atonement. He provided his word to guide them. He provided food and wine through the harvest. This is a picture of the gospel. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Died in our place as a sacrifice. Accomplished our redemption. He forgives us. He covers us with his righteousness and provides our every need. And because of what Jesus did for us, now God is rejoicing over us with singing. The Lord has joy over us. Can you believe it? The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has joy over us. His joy protects us from his wrath and anger forever. That anger is removed. Christian, God's. Not mad at you. God's not mad at you, Christian. He will never, ever pour his wrath out on his children. God's not mad at you. And some of you don't believe that today. Some of you are Christians, but you live with a sense that God is ticked at you. You think he's mad at you. He thinks his arms are crossed, there's a frown on his face, and he rolls his eyes in disgust at you. Some of you think he doesn't even like you. You are wrong. He rejoices over you. He delights in you, and he does it all because of Jesus. You are his beloved today, Christian. You are his beloved. That is your identity. And the proof of that today is right here at this table The Lord's Supper is proof, tangible proof, that will be confirmed shortly by your taste buds that God's not mad at you anymore, Christian. And if you're one of his children, adopted into his family, then you have reason to rejoice big time today because God rejoices over you because of his son, Jesus. But if you have not repented and admitted your sins and rebellion against God, then you need to fear. God is mad at you. His anger is kindled against you because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because you've broken his commandments and broken his law. But you can escape his anger and wrath by running to Jesus. You can escape being the recipient of his anger and wrath forever for eternity in hell if you would just run to Jesus? Will you do that today? There's hope for every single person here. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Why not leave today knowing that God's not mad at you, but that he actually rejoices over you? That would be the best way to walk out of these doors today. It's time to celebrate his love today, Grace. It's time to party. And we're going to do that by eating the Lord's Supper. So let's take a moment to pray, to load our conscience with the guilt of our sin as we hear the law, and then to rehearse the gospel and remember that the Lord rejoices over us. Let's pray. Father, we hear, if we just start with the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 5:7, you shall have no other gods before me. If we just start there, we're already undone. We've already been exposed because we worship a thousand idols every day. So we're already condemned by just the first commandment, and we haven't even got to the other nine. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of wicked thoughts, wicked words. Wicked actions and wicked motives that drive everything that we think, say, and do. Forgive us and cleanse us. We stand exposed as sinners. But now we rehearse the gospel. Say, forgive us. And we thank you that because of Jesus, we are your beloved. Because we are in union with your son, you now rejoice over us. It's unbelievable. It seems too good to be true, but it is true. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.